0: It's the SNL Hall of Fame podcast, with your host, Jamie Dew, Chief Librarian, Thomas Senna, and featuring Matt Ardill. and now, Curator of the Hall. Jamie do
1: all right. Thank you so much, Doug to It's a pleasure to be here with you all inside the SNL hall of fame. Before you enter though, would you do me a favor and use the mat and wipe your feet? It's uh, a little slushy out here in Toronto and there's no doubt that it would create a slipping hazard inside the SNL hall of fame podcast is a weekly affair Each episode, we take a deep dive into the career of a former cast member, host, musical guest, or writer, and add them to the ballot for your consideration. Once the nominees have been announced, we turn to you, the listener, to vote for the most deserving and help determine who will be enshrined for perpetuity inside this glorious building, the SNL Hall of Fame. We are going to do something a little different today, not a cast member, not a host, not a writer. Not a musical guest, but a producer. That's right. This week we are talking about Dick Ebersol, And before you hit the stop button, I think you should give a listen to the conversation between Thomas and Deremy Dove as they talk about Dick Ebersol and what he means to the legacy of SNL and why he is important. And I think once you give that a listen Uh, you're going to be compelled to at least consider Dick Ebersol as a hall of famer. So there's that. What I'm doing now is walking down the hallway past the janitor's closet to the corner where our friend Matthew Ardill likes to hang out in his minutiae minute corner.
2: Matt, are you ready? Hey, Jamie, how you doing? I'm great. How about you? I'm pretty good, thanks. I'm pretty good. Looking forward to today's episode. Yeah, I'm really curious about Dick Ebersall. What have you got for me? Well, he is five ten, uh, born July twenty eighth, nineteen forty seven. He produced a show between eighty one and eighty five, but he is an interesting character because he kind of he's not the only person to come into the world of comedy via the world of sports. He dropped out of Yale. Uh, to work as a researcher for ABC Sports in 1968 at the Olympics. Subsequently, he returned and completed his degree, one of the first Yalies of many to work at the show. He was the director of weekend late-night programming before the show started, and he moved to director of NBC Sports in 1980. 89 until 2011. Uh, he led the charge for NBC to acquire the rights to the NFL, NBA, Notre Dame football, MLB, leading to the 1995-96 season being the only time the World Series, Super Bowl, NBA Finals and the Olo- Summer Olympics were all on the same network. Holy jeez. Um, yeah, like he is he is dedicated Powerhouse. to sport. Yeah, yeah. He's married to Susan Saint James, the actress, and he is best friends with Vince McMahon uh, of the WWE slash WWF, if you're an oldie like me, Uh, and they co-created not uh, not just the Saturday night main event for the WWE, but also launched the XFL Football League together. So he is kind of responsible for that stinker, (laughs) but was ranked number one of 100 most powerful people in sports in 1996, previously ranking second, third, fourth, sixth, and seventh, seventieth, uh, excuse me. And he's a does a lot for charity. He paid fifty thousand dollars to have Carly Simon tell him who the subject of "You're So Vain" was. With that money going to charity, and he has been inducted into the Olympic Hall of Fame uh, and the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame in two thousand and five. So he's a very interesting guy. T- ties to sports, comedy, really dedicated. Well, that's pretty
1: cool. Thank you so much, Matthew. We will check in with you again next week. But for now, let's go downstairs to our friend Thomas Senna in conversation with Derby Dove as they discuss Dick Ebersole.
3: Yes, Jamie, thank you so much. I am here with Jeremy Dove, the co-host of the Bigger Than the Game podcast, along with Jose Ruiz. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thomas, thank you for having me. I'm so pumped because I love
4: talking SNL and SNL history, and this literally is a dream come true, getting to finally see your face and talk with you about SNL. so.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We've been in contact for a bit and I've listened to your podcast and you've listened to ours. And so this is a nice uh, melding of, of podcasts here. And maybe this is a home and home. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I would love it. I <laughs> we can talk it. after the show. But uh, yeah, so I've enjoyed recent episodes. I was telling you, like, you have episodes ranging from like a, a great discussion about the Montreal screw job. That was the famous thing with Bret Hart and Vince McMahon and Shawn Michaels. There was a recent watch along of that famous college basketball game between North Carolina and Duke in 1995. Uh, and my beloved Supersonics of the 90s, you guys did an episode that was near and dear to my heart. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) So, just a lot of great content on your uh, Bigger Than The Game podcast. So, uh, love having you here. And so, your podcast is primarily a sports podcast, but every now and then, you delve into things outside of sports, SNL being one of them. Uh, So, I'm just curious, kick things off, uh, what's your relationship with SNL? Like, when did you start watching, Favorite Era, kind of things like that?
4: Well, that's a great question. I can be honest and say... Back in like the mid 90s, Comedy Central would kind of air SNL reruns. And, you know, being a kid, home in the summer, me and my older brother, we were watching, I want to say it was probably the summer of ninety-five, watching Comedy Central in the daytime, and they were re-airing the Eddie Murphy era of SNL, which is a connection to what we're gonna be talking about. And I knew Eddie Murphy. I remember for my sixth birthday, I went to see Nutty Professor. Eddie Murphy was a hero of mine still is. And so that kind of got it started with just constantly watching those old and getting that history. It was also huge at that time, getting to see Farley Sandler and, you know, that's where Tommy boy and Billy Madison, those movies coming out and seeing that connection that they had with SNL. So that kind of started it for me. I would say my favorite era though would be, and I kind of found it the same way in the summertime watching reruns, is I got to give it to that late 80s that Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, Lovitz, Nora Dunn, Jan Hooks, that era of SNL. Kevin Nealon, I think, was just, you know, Phil Hartman, it was just a great cast, of writing, and like a lot of people say, you know, some of eras of SNL, the writing's great, the cast isn't. Or it could be switched. You know, cast is great in writing, but I felt like that was one where everything just clicked. And some of the my favorite memories of watching SNL are watching those reruns.
3: Yeah, you discovered the show, how a lot of us discovered the show. I remember watching those reruns on Comedy Central, and they were truncated versions. So instead of hour and a half show, it would be right. an hour. So they would cut like some of the sketches that didn't hit. <laughs> so maybe that's why a lot of times, sometimes we might romanticize those eras a little bit because we missed a lot of Great the bad point. sketches Great uh, point. that were But I do love, I think the late eighties, early nineties, that was kind of, that was kind of my era too. Uh, so we were in contact uh, about doing an episode and you brought up Dick Ebersol, And that actually I, it surprised me because that Dick Ebersol was somebody who I didn't necessarily think about in terms of scheduling out hall of fame episodes and whatnot. But after revisiting that era and doing some deeper thinking about Ebersol, it makes complete sense <laughs> to right. nominate Ebersol. And I felt silly for for not thinking of that beforehand because it just makes such sense. So why were you compelled to want to discuss Dick Ebersol and and his SNL Hall of Fame candidacy?
4: Well, Thomas, uh, for you know, being a big fan of the show and. I was like, yes, a place where SNL history is discussed. I was thinking, I'm like, if I could get on the show, who can I talk about? And there's obvious ones. And I'm like, someone's probably going to already say Will Ferrell, Eddie Murphy, Belushi, Farley. So I'm like, how can I get on? But say someone that is like a thinker. And for me, and I totally get, I kind of get why, but I think it's like a injustice. I think Dick Ebersol is one of the most important people in SNL history. And the boot, what makes it more fascinating and impressive is he has no comedy background whatsoever. And yet he's such a really important figure in the show's history and vital not only in his creation, but in honestly saving the show where I honestly feel like he's a big reason. Without him, we wouldn't be doing an SNL Hall of Fame show in so many ways.
3: Yeah, and after after doing a lot of my research and and reading his autobiography, we should mention it. Yeah, um, it's it's an autobiography that you've read in full. I've read um, quite a bit of it. Uh, it's called From Saturday Night to Sunday Night: My Forty Years of Laughter, Tears, and Touchdowns in TV. Uh, that by Dick Ebersol. Uh, we'll be referencing the autobiography and a lot, and it will have guided a lot of our conversation. So I urge a lot of our listeners, actually, if you're interested in Dick Ebersol, go get his autobiography. Uh, it's really great, but. I mean, you when you mentioned Dick Ebersall, I mean I should have known right then anybody who would propose to do a Dick Ebersoll episode would be somebody that we would want <laughs> doing an SNL <laughs> Hall of Fame episode because that's so outside the box. It's such a cool proposal for an episode. So so this is yeah, this is gonna be great. So Dick Ebersoll just the Cliff Notes, a couple Cliff Notes. He helped get SNL actually up and running, along with Lauren Michaels, and he was ultimately the executive producer of SNL from 1981 to 1985. So those are just a couple of Cliff Notes to uh, lead off this discussion. But we'll start uh, when Ebersol. You had mentioned that he was in sports television. That's kind of how both you and I first knew who Dick Ebersaw was. So he did multiple jobs for ABC Sports. He started, he went to Yale and he started at ABC Sports when he was at Yale. So can you kind of explain to us maybe what he did, uh, some of the things that he did while he was at ABC Sports in his early 20s? Right. So he kind of, that's where he learned
4: the producer job. And he started off as kind of like a gopher you know, at the 68, Olymp- 68 Olympics in Mexico City, you know, in a, that gopher, which is, he said, I've heard him say, like, go for coffee, go for this, go running. But that's where he started to kind of see, and he sat under arguably the greatest sports producer ever in Rune Arledge. Rune Arlich, who created ABC's Why World of Sports, ABC Monday Night Football, later on became president of ABC News and really taught Dick the importance of capturing the story. It's important to hook people and get that story. And you see throughout Dick's time later on at ABC and then at NBC Sports, he was always big on. Yes, the game is important, but to capture America, to capture the audience, you have to tell the story, show a human side to these athletes that are performing and why they should keep watching. And I think Dick kept that mindset that he learned from Rune, not just with sports, but honestly with Saturday Night Live, which is impressive because, like I said earlier, a guy with no comedy background.
3: Yeah, he, he learned from Rune Arledge, as you said, it was just a huge, not just in sports television, but television in general on the news side as well. And he did learn that aspect of storytelling. I think it was the Pan Am games in the late 60s where that mm-hmm. was Dick Ebersall's one of his first big assignments. And he got to use ABC's credit card and travel and right. do interviews, watch these athletes and get all these stories. So that was a really great experience, man. So we're both obviously sports fans. And how does that life sound to you, especially in your early twenties? Like how cool would that have been to be Dick Ebersol doing that? It, it's just incredible
4: that like, I always get envious of guys in those previous generations where it seemed like getting access to people was just like so easy. Like, imagine we can't go into, you know, I can't go into the head of Netflix or HBO and just be like, hey, can I get a job? But it seemed like he just like could just people could walk in back then and just, hey, I'll help out. I'll, I'll help do whatever. okay we'll take you along, kid. And then he gets to and obviously he shows his talent and they keep him. But just to be able to go and travel and go to some of the biggest events in sports history and be a part of it. And that's some of the great broadcasters. You know, he was there helping to learn and work with uh, Jim McKay, a great ABC broadcaster, Howard Cosell, you know, very legendary broadcaster. So he really was under this great learning tree while at ABC Sports.
3: Yeah, and he, you're right. He put himself out there. I think it was at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which is the big, famous uh, auto right. race. That he noticed a production team there covering it, and so he started talking to people. and And you got to put yourself out there, you know. That's, Absolutely. And that, that's what Ebersol did. And one thing we were talking about how he learned from. Rune Arledge. And one of the things that he talks about, uh, it's a really gripping story, honestly, in his autobiography is from the 1972 mm-hmm. Olympics in Munich, where Israeli athletes and coaches were killed by members of a militant Palestinian group. But Ebersole learned a lot from observing and partaking in how Rune Arledge decided to cover that. What do you remember of what Dick Ebersole said about that?
4: Well, because uh, being a fan of sports history, those are some of the most chilling but known words in sports broadcasting history. When Jim McKay talked about when he announced, he said they're all gone. You know, when I was a kid, my father used to say our greatest hopes and our worst fears are mm-hmm. seldom realized. Our worst fears have been realized tonight.
0: They've now said that there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms this mo- yesterday morning. Nine were
4: killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. That's still talked about to this day, how he sat there throughout the whole crisis and the way he covered it with class and dignity. And Dick Ebersole said that Jim McKay was the one who taught him, he pretty much taught him how to edit and write a story and how to write like a script for television. And he said there was no one better than Jim McKay. And I think just to be there because sadly now, Sports and you know, politics. You know, we all are aware of what can happen at the Olympics on an international and you know, that terroristic kind of threat, but people weren't thinking about that back in 1972. So, for it to be, oh, this is the Olympics and it's competition, and you can proudly show your country, you know, all this accomplishment, and then for it to go to suddenly such a dramatic turn when sports takes a back seat and everyone's just wondering what will happen and sadly the worst thing that could happen did happen it uh it shows to me it was it's something that you know you have to kind of bring with you is that no matter what you're in when you're in this like entertainment broadcasting kind of world you can have fun but you have to also know when it's time to be serious and sometimes it's you know snap of a finger you have to do both
3: yeah and that's that's what it sounded like had happened i mean they were there in munich Covering the Olympic Games and just doing what they did, and then this—to put it lightly—a curveball comes to them, and just a a heck of a learning on the job and learning amidst a crisis, as far as Dick Ebersaw went, and just one of many things that that he got to do at ABC Sports. And we keep in mind this was—he was born in 1947, so he was in his early to mid twenties through this whole period at ABC Sport. Mm-hmm. So he was like working on the creation of Monday Night Football, or he was around when that happened. He was working with, as you said, Jim McKay, Howard Cosell, Olympic Games. He was in his early to mid twenties, but they could already see that he was kind of this prodigy. Like he just seemed to get the business as a whole.
4: And I I think Thomas, to your point you said earlier, like about I think for all of us, it, it's a combination of, like you said, putting yourself out there, which Dick Ebersol did time and time again. And the other part that we really can't control, it's timing. So Dick Ebersol was interested in sports and in television. But... Who he wouldn't? No one could see that he was a part of a golden age of sports television. Right when he signed on, and then going on in the future, like it, it just shows that it's that combination of putting yourself out there, taking a chance, and also
3: you can't control timing is timing. Putting himself out there and taking a chance, and that that fortunate timing led to him in 1974 getting hired by nbc they hired him away from abc and he was tasked to come up with a show to take the place of johnny carson reruns because carson just said basically screw you guys stop airing my reruns on saturday night find something else so nbc took a chance on this kid and his his mid-twenties to help come up with a show, again, to take the place of these Carson reruns. So, that's around the time that he met with Lorne Michaels. Right. And they essentially, and not a lot of people know this, that Dick Ebersol and Lorne Michaels, for all intents and purposes, created Saturday Night Live. Right. And that's what's
4: impressive about it is, so he, from reading the book and hearing him in other interviews... He got tasked with that and he thought, well, what's the best way to go about it? Comedy and a variety type. But like I said earlier, he has no comedy background. So he, you know, went around looking at different comedy clubs, but meeting with different managers, producers. But he meets this 30 year old Canadian producer. Guy, but he just said he vibed with them. He said he was meeting with a lot of guys who were much older. So Lauren's about two years older than Dick saw, but he liked them and he vibed. And then they were having a good conversation. And Lauren said, come on out. And Ron up being, you know, Lauren invited him to a comedy show along with Lauren's wife at the time, Rosie Schuster, who will become a writer on SNL. And Dick just had a good vibe with him. Liked. He said he never met someone like Lauren. Like Lauren's sensibility, his vision, and pretty much they co-create, but he's the one he hires. He brings Lauren Michaels on to really lead the charge for this show, which they didn't know yet, you know, would be NBC Saturday night, later Saturday Night Live. And I think, I mean, we all can agree, Dick Ebersaw winds up picking the most important person in the history of SNL. I yeah. mean, we, you know, no matter how much you, you love Lorne or you disagree with him, he is the most important person in this show's history. And Dick Ebersaw picked him and picked him to pretty much lead the charge, but also didn't just get out of the way. He helped and supported, gave ideas and gave protection from the network when Lorne was creating
3: this show. And this will be a theme When we're talking about Dick Ebersole throughout this episode is that he's a very good leader, a very good CEO, but he's also smart enough to know who are the experts at what they do. And he knows that his forte isn't and wasn't comedy, but... To your point, he met Lauren Michaels, vibed with him, could see that, that Lauren knew what he was talking about as far as comedy went. I mean, Lauren, he worked in comedy in, in Canada. He worked as a duo, mm-hmm. as part of a duo in Canada. He was a, a writer with Laugh In. So he had this comedy experience, but Dick Ebersaw was smart enough. And I guess I'm going to say humble is the right word, but he knew yeah. his limits, I guess. There's some humility uh, to that. And uh,
4: that's, that's a great point because. A lot of people may say, well, of course, he didn't have a comedy background, but I think we all, Thomas, you don't want to put words in your mouth, but (laughs) you, me, people listening, we all know people who on jobs or we see like they meddle consciously, subconsciously. Oh, I'm in charge or this is mine. I have to do this. Dick Ebersole technically was the one in charge. You know, he was tapped, But like you said, he stepped out of the way and made that decision. I'm bringing on Lauren. I like his vision my job is to let him do his thing and give him support and help protect from the networks and when they're trying to meddle in because this was something you know which i'm sure the listeners know but yeah now it's an institution now we're used to snl but at the time that was something that was totally radically different and they were dealing with a lot of old-time executives at nbc who really didn't quite get that their generation and get the concept and dick ebersaw had to kind of shield their meddling and shield them kind of knocking down
3: Lauren, which was not an easy job to do. Right, exactly. And one of the interesting nuggets as far as when they were creating the show that, that I enjoyed was that the actual the one of the original ideas was to rotate four hosts and right. have each of them host one show per month. So we're talking Lily Tomlin, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, and George Carlin. We're gonna be the hosts that were rotated. Uh, I don't know if at that point they were talking about having a, um, one cast around that one host. Maybe that was the idea that was part of it, but I found that idea to be fascinating.
4: Yeah, I did too. And I think you're right. It was, the cast was talked about, um, like to be, but still like kind of wrote. And I, obviously I'm glad it didn't go that way, but I think it would have been fascinating and they're all heavy hitters who they're talking about.
3: Yeah. Um, We'll say that again. Lily Tomlin, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, and George Carlin. Heavy hitters. Yeah, you're you're looking at, you know,
4: maybe people with four of the the top ten great stand-ups of all time with all those people. So it's like they they weren't – it wasn't any chop liver there. So they, they were looking at some big names, but I'm glad that they went with, obviously, the version of SNL that we all know and love, but – it, I mean, it was, it's 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 funny, and I love that's why I love like this book or other things SNL history because I love to see how things were made in the process and how they got there. And it's like if you don't do that, you think, oh, of course, they just woke up and thought we're going to have one host and we're going to have these sketches and it's going to be ninety minutes. But it was a thought out process and back and forth thinking about how to get that format right for this show.
3: Yeah, and if, and you could see that they were even through season 2 honestly they were still playing with that format but dick right. Arber- yeah dick Ebersole was was a huge part in just even having the conversations of what is this even going to look like like, what, what is this thing? So, in 1975, of course, SNL debuts. George Carlin was the first host, and it was still very much a, a variety show, one like a type of variety show that you might see uh, around that time, uh, mixed in with some sketches and different kinds of things. So, once the show got up and running, Ebersol kind of left a lot, most of the production to Lorne. He took a little backseat and it became more of Lorne's show once the show got started. So, I mean, I'm curious, have you gone back and watched much of, of that original era of SNL? Yes, I,
4: I have. Cause it always fascinates me because it's one of those things where I think as time is going on, in my opinion, that's not the best cast in SNL history. It still is one of the best, but I wouldn't call it the best in my opinion, but what it always will have is that it was the foundation. It laid the building blocks for this institution. And that's something that all those original people cast and writers from those first five years can say. So it's interesting. I'm also like, you know, like you said, I love history. So I love seeing what comedy sketches I could play. If I, you know, on YouTube now for a kid who has no idea what would still hit from previous eras, And what doesn't hit. So I know, like, for, like, my little, like, you know, godson, if I put on Chris Farley, that clicks with him. He's cracking up and everything. Uh, Eddie Murphy stuff does. So I I even recently going back to, like, the first five years and putting on a Blues Brothers sketch or a Conehead sketch and seeing if, like, I get the joke. I know my parents get the joke. But seeing if it still translates, you know, people still understand it.
3: Yeah, of course, that original era is super important. We had talked about the format of the show. They had the Muppets. They had <laughs> they had Albert magicians. Brooks. They had Albert Brooks movies. So it was really neat to see them sort of play with the format. Uh, I kind of pinpoint maybe either a Candace Bergen-hosted episode or the Richard Pryor episode as when SNL started forming into itself. Yeah, Especially that Richard Pryor episode. Speaking yeah. of some stuff that maybe you can't play now for <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> for certain yeah. audiences yeah absolutely absolutely and that's the
4: the key it's like you you're, the Candace Bergen episode and prior they're like two of the first ten episodes but you see the the inkling of what it would become and at that time when those episodes happened they didn't think like we got it they were just figuring it out and it would take other people even coming on I remember uh, Buck Henry. Came on the host, and he said, "Like to John Belushi, that samurai sketch was funny. You should do it again." And they hadn't thought about recurring, like, "Oh, yeah, it's a popular sketch. Recur it. Like keep it going." Like they had the bees in the beginning,
3: but it was that like, was more. The bees were more so. They were recurring as sort of an fu right. to the network who said Pretty the much. bees sucked. So they're like, yeah. okay, well, well, we'll do it again then. Right. <laughs> and and kind of having that meta joke when Rob
4: Reiner was hosting and Belushi gives that speech.
3: I'm sorry if you think we're ruining
2: your show, Mr. Reiner. But, uh, see, you don't understand. We didn't ask to be bees. You see, you've you got Norman Lear in a first-rate writing staff. <laughs> But this is all they came up with for us. (laughs) Do
0: you you think we like this?
2: (laughs) No. No, Mr. Reiner. We don't have any choice.
4: It was like that's like a meta kind of like poke wink wink at like the network and stuff. But it was, uh, they weren't Buck Henry saying, you should do Samurai again. Oh, recurring sketches. Like, mm-hmm. it's just always fascinating to me to see, like, this institution that we all know, like, how it kind of came to be. And some of it was,
3: like, really deep stuff. Some of it was just someone saying, hey, you should do it again. And boom, here we go. <laughs> right. So so we're seeing SNL finding its footing, getting up and running. It's a, It turns into a huge hit, obviously. Uh, so between... Nineteen seventy-five, nineteen and nineteen eighty, Ebersol was the vice president of late night programming at NBC. Do you have any recollection from what from what you've read and know, like what Ebersaw was up to in the late seventies while SNL was kind of finding its footing?
4: Yeah, I, a lot of that for me was key because him bringing in Brandon Tartikoff and knowing I did not know that. I knew what brandon tartikoff later would become and what he would do with nbc in the 80s and turning them around but brandon tartikoff's love and wanting to be on wanting to be a writer on snl and kind of like that partnership and that great friendship that they would kind of like really grow and i feel like ever kind of was in like a weird place i really felt which he had made money you know he had had some success but he was kind of was looking for that next challenge and what to do he would have some offers but, like, I know Rune Arledge had offered him a spot to come back to ABC to be his number two, but that didn't get the juices pumping for Dick ever. So He kind of, When I read, looking back at that part of his career, he was kind of, like, lost, kind of, like, finding
3: himself. He was having fun, but didn't know where he was going next. And as far as the, the show, as far as SNL goes, in 1980, they hit a point where the show, right away after five seasons it looked like it might be canceled or in trouble. So, Lorne leaves. The original cast leaves. Most of the writers leave. So, we're talking about almost a complete overhaul of Saturday Night Live. And Jean Dumanian, uh, which who I believe was the talent coordinator uh, at SNL. She was the booker, yeah. She was the booker. So, she was hired as the producer of the show to take over for Lorne and... The first season, season six, honestly, was a bit of a disaster. And no offense to those people working on the show, to those cast members, but it was kind of a disaster. And it did get off to a weird start. Elliot Gould was the host of that first episode, and they immediately referenced the original cast, which I thought was a very weird decision. Mr. Gould. Oh. Oh, hi. Uh, Gail. Gail Mathias.
0: Sort of a cross between Gilda and (laughs) Jane. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's just great. <laughs> Let's me- see. You're you're the one. Go, oh,
4: kind of a cross between Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. Hi, I'm Ann Risley. Where? Kind of a cross between Gilda and Lorraine. Where? Come on, hold it down.
1: <laughs> Let me guess. Let me guess. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried. I'm kind of a cross between John Belushi and. That guy from last year, he did the Rod Serling, nobody could remember his name. Harry. Yeah. Yeah.
4: It was weird, and this is where I go back and forth, which is, like, a compliment to Dick Ebersole. I don't know if he should be remembered for co-creating the show or for what we're about to talk about, (laughs) because we've all heard Saturday Night Dead references, but this was the first time that there was, like, Saturday Night Dead. And we're all used to, like we kind of are seeing now, a transition era, a new cast, stars leaving and coming in. After those first five years that people thought, like, the show should end, like these great comedy superstars, you don't replace them. But, you know, Fred Silverman was the NBC exec and he didn't want SNL ending on his watch. And honestly, that's why he hired Gene Domainian. He really clashed with Lorne and Dick Ebersaw. So he, Dick Ebersaw winds up getting fired. You know, Lorne was about to get fired just from all that. So Lorne leaves and Al Franken does that whole yes. limo for a limo thing about Fred Silverman. I found out that NBC gives limousines to Tom Snyder and the Gary Coleman.
0: Now, taste aside, these guys do star in their own shows, so I can't really complain about them either. But now get this. You know who gets complete door-to-door limousine service from NBC? Fred Silverman. <laughs> now, here is a guy
2: <laughs> who is a total,
0: unequivocal failure.
4: <laughs> okay. now, the guy's been here two years, and he hasn't done diddly squat. <laughs> and he gets a limo so he hires gene Domanian, who was a talent booker that's a hard job but has no comedy background but hires her pretty much as like an fu to anyone with lauren so lauren and the writers and the cast which is really important to like to dick Ebersol's story when they leave not only are they burned out but they're leaving on like pretty much screw you to nbc they're not happy with the network
3: And the network ultimately wasn't happy with Gene Dumanian either. Toward the end of that season, uh, around the spring of 1981, they replaced Dumanian with Dick Ebersall. So we're back to Dick Ebersall. And I found it interesting too. I didn't know this before reading his autobiography, but he actually essentially got Lorne's blessing after a meeting with Lorne.
4: Yeah. So that I knew from, there's those great, dvds about like you know snl in the 80s snl in the 90s like in the 2000s so hearing him you know when brandon Tartikoff, who was you know head of programming now said the only two people who could save it are lauren and you and lauren doesn't want to come back so dick Ebersol said well let me watch the show he wanted to watch it on the thursday friday and, and then on you know saturday from like the control room cuz he could see like the mess ups how it's going who can save a, a sketch and whatever and he said it was way worse than he thought but here's where it comes to what you said Thomas earlier checking the ego out he read the room and he said you know what the guy who he hired Lauren Michaels is like I have to go talk with him and i have to go get his blessing because we can't save this show if all the people who helped to build it those writers former cast members think that lauren is still pissed off that the show's going on if they think that he's still mad they're not going to come back and help so i had to go get talk to lauren they talked throughout the night and ebersole said it which it's probably one of the top five most important conversations in SNL history. And Lauren gave his blessing that he you know, wanted Dick to keep the show going and wanted to succeed. And just like that, the floodgates opened and people were glad to come back and help out. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I found that interesting too, because b- before I started doing a bunch of SNL research, obviously I've been a fan for over 30 years, but I didn't really get into the nitty gritty until the last few years. And I had always assumed that there might be some tension between Lorne Michaels and Dick Ebersol because you had the D- Ebersol years and then you had Lorne Michaels producing most of the show. So I always thought that there maybe there was a rivalry between them in those eras, but I I thought it was refreshing that Lorne and Dick Ebersol actually had a really nice relationship and Ebersol thought very highly of Lorne. That's something that surprised me. Well, um and I hate to spoiler alert for anyone oh. <laughs> reading
4: but the I read the book, but uh Dick Eversaw with was on a private jet with his sons, I wanna say in oh four, oh five, and it crashed and tragically his youngest son dies in that accident and uh Dick Ebersoll has like a broken back and he's hurt. He's in like I think a hospital in like Aspen and one of the first people to fly out to see him was Lauren Michaels. Wow. So that which always hits me like like you said, like I thought there was a rivalry, but not only did they get along well, but that's a tight relationship when, you know, you hear that and you're one of the first people by someone's bedside. You know, Dick said when he first woke up, he saw his wife, you know, some of his other kids and he saw Lauren Michaels. Yeah. And so that's that's powerful.
3: Wow. Yeah. If there are any Lorne Michaels loyalists out there who are are unsure about the Ebersol era, just know that I think Lorne would want you to embrace the Ebersol era (laughs) as well because they're that tight. So at the end of season six, Dick Ebersol actually produced one episode and then there was a writer's strike, probably a fortuitous writer's strike. Uh, A very good one. Yes, a very good one for the show because that allowed them to just do that one show, then start retooling. For season seven. So that was so season seven was when Dick Ebersall, that was his first full season as SNL producer. So out are as cast members are Denny Dillon, Gilbert Gottfried, Yvonne Hudson, Matthew Lawrence, Gail Mathias. Patrick Weathers, Charles Rocket, and Risley. Honestly, names that we haven't mentioned much here, if at all, right. on the SNL Hall of Fame. Right. So I'll give them a mention right now in yes. that they're out of season six. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the only cast members retained are Joe Piscopo and the aforementioned Eddie Murphy. So I'll name the cast here for season seven. So they 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 retool, they have Joe Piscopo, Eddie Murphy, Brian Doyle Murray, of course, Bill Murray's brother, Robin Duke, Christine Ebersole, Mary Gross, Tim Kazarinski, and Tony Rosato are part of that season seven cast. So one of his first decisions and arguably his best decision was to feature Eddie Murphy more on the show. So can yeah. you talk about, you had mentioned that Eddie Murphy is like a hero of yours. Can you talk about like what specifically stood out to you as far as Eddie Murphy's time on SNL?
4: Yeah. So for me, this is what's fascinating because you can begrudgingly give Gene Domainian credit that she did bring Eddie on as a featured player, even though she really didn't want Eddie on there and she had to be convinced by Neil Levy and, you know, a couple other people that Eddie's the guy, but it kind of shows her lack of, comedy expertise or lack of paying attention honestly because you name those people from season six and why eddie's not featured in season six why like you can clearly see he's the guy they were trying to give it and i like joe piscopo as a sidekick but they were trying to make joe piscopo the breakout star when you have this 19 year old phenom right there waiting to go and so that's where i give dick eberstall no he did not Bring Eddie on, but like you said, Thomas, he kept him that he kept five people from the holdover for season six. And that's like you said, Eddie and Joe and three writers, David uh Sheffield, Barry Blaustein, and Pam Norris. And David Sheffield and Barry Blaustein formed a great like trio with Eddie for a lot of those sketches on SNL and wind up writing a lot of those classic Eddie Murphy movies. So he even saw talent in those writers to keep them on just to throw that out there too. But um, what Eddie had was if you look at it at that time, 1980, 1981, you know, we have the wave of like black television kind of had from the seventies had fizzled out, mm-hmm. you know, from Sanford and son, like the Jeffersons was still on, but was kind of fizzling you didn't have those characters like so to see someone hey, he was a black man but a young black man coming on there to middle america and bringing that sensibility bringing that in your face kind of raw edge but still likable still makes you like connect with him and middle america white america was connecting with it i think people underrate or don't appreciate how hard that was back then you know even now still a challenge but back in the early 80s and to do that at 19 2021 20, is incredible and to me just the sketches a lot of times you know the sketches that eddie has he has great recurring characters for sure you know mr robinson's neighborhood and buckwheat and gumby but he has some great one-offs you know james brown hot tub <laughs>
3: People remember he did that one time yeah that was once exactly
4: you know i remember the the whole tyrone green and kill my landlord and that epic like you know like little video like that you know c-i-l-l <laughs> my landlord and what i give eddie credit for on snl particular is i will always call him the greatest cast member ever because no one there's been so many great cast members and you've done episodes on them and No one's carried the show pretty much on their shoulders for 90 minutes like Eddie Murphy did. And I I can't see any other cast member, even if they were like the guy. Dana Carvey had a great cast around them. Will Ferrell had great people around them. Farley, like great people around them. Even the names that you mentioned in season seven to come on, they were great. They had sketch experience from like Second City. They were influenced by Belushi and Aykroyd. They knew you know, Tim Kazarinski was a friend of John Belushi. So they they he had they had like good role players, you know, I hate to use the sports term, but I got to. <laughs> like, yeah. They had good role players, but Eddie was the star.
3: Yeah, Eddie was the star and and we shouldn't put it lightly that Eddie Almost did literally save the show. Eddie and Dick Ebersall were probably maybe the two most influential people uh, in that era uh, as far as saving the show. And we've given credit to Eddie, definitely. He's an SNL Hall of Famer. He got voted in in season one. He was one of those no-brainers, lock Hall of Famers. He's an all-timer. So we've, over the years, talked about Eddie and how he saved the show, Dick Ebersaw is mentioned less so as far Mm -hmm. as helping to save the show, but he was definitely super instrumental in that. And
4: the thing is, it's easy for, and I'm not even knocking naysayers, it could us to be like, hey, of course, that's easy for Dick to see Eddie Murphy as the star and put him, feature him. But obviously it wasn't because... The previous producer did not want to to even have him as a cast member when he was clearly the funniest guy and begrudgingly said, we'll make him a featured player. And I don't believe anybody was just like, let's point to Eddie like the rest. It was Dick saw something in Eddie and, you know, Joe Piscopo, too, and said, we're going to build it around them. And I think it was huge that. Yeah, if you watch the Ebersol years, there's great moments with Eddie. Joe Piscopo has good moments, and we'll get to like his final season of who he brought in. But he was smart enough also to be like, I can't copy Lauren. I can't have it be the same way Lauren does it. And to me, it is very obvious when I watch those Ebersol years it is like, it's different. It's like, oh, it's not the SNL, but I like it. And I know it's SNL, but you see a difference in just how it's done all around. And I think that's smart by him to be like, we
3: we can't copy Lauren and we can't copy that original cast. If we do, we will fail. So between 1981 and 84, the show is finding its footing. Uh, It's doing well with Eddie Murphy as the star, but we're seeing Eddie Murphy's last season. A lot of people don't know this. He I think most or all of his sketches were pre-tapes. He wasn't really, he wasn't doing live sketches. He was such a big star at that point. I think 48 hours had already come out. Beverly Hills Mm -hmm. Cop was about to come out and Trading trading places. So Eddie was this huge star. His schedule was tight he had a lot of leverage as far as like when he could work. And as the star, they said, well, we'll cater to your schedule. You can do pre-tapes and stuff. But I think maybe that was a signal of the show possibly needing to go in a different direction or needing to get revamped in some way. So that revamp happened, as you alluded to, in, in 1984. And that's what is kind of referred to as Dick Ebbersol Steinbrenner year in other sports yeah. another yes. sports metaphor George Steinbrenner of course was the old uh, the former uh, New York Yankees owner who of course the Yankees even back when Steinbrenner was the owner they would spend money they would sign all these free agents uh, Dave Winfield, Ricky Henderson and the like to to huge contracts so Dick Ebbersol brought in Billy Crystal, Martin Short, Christopher Guest As kind of, I don't want to say ringers, but, you know, they maybe were a little bit. Yeah. 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 And we haven't really talked about season 10 much here on the SNL Hall of Fame because of the, the stars of that season, primarily Billy Crystal and Martin Short, they were only cast members for one season and cast members need to have two or more seasons under their belts to be considered for the Hall of Fame. So... Looking back, how did you feel about season 10? And I'll give a real quick, the cast, Jim Belushi, Billy Crystal, Mary Gross, Christopher Guest, Rich Hall, Gary Kroger, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, a half a season of Harry Shearer, Martin Short and Pamela Stevenson. So yeah, looking back, I mean, what, are your, what What were your thoughts about season 10?
4: Well, I'm going to be honest, Thomas, it's yeah.
3: changed.
4: So looking back, because like you said, I kind of was like, that's not SNL. When I was growing up and watching, and it was funny, and I don't mean by, like the sketches are great. There's all time great characters and moments from that one season, but I was to me like SNL. The stars of SNL are people. That's how I saw it back then. You were an unknown. You get you know, discovered on SNL and then you become famous. Billy Crystal was already a TV star. Martin Short had done SCTV, Chris Guest, Harry, they were known guys. So back then I kind of was like, that's not, that's not the SNL way. You know, that's going like, you know, Eddie Murphy was not, was an unknown and then blew up. Other guys were unknowns, but I didn't like it then. But as time has gone on, I respect Ebersault. You know what? He did what he had to do. He, you know, and he knew. Like, we, like we've been saying, he knew his strengths and weaknesses. He wasn't. Lorne can go across the country, go to second city and comedy clubs, and know what he's looking for. Dick Ebersol wasn't going to do that. And I think Dick Ebersol was kind of tired. You know, he he kind of you it know, was getting toward the end for SNL for him. So instead of doing all that, he said, how can I keep this show going? I'm going to bring in those who I know can get the job done and have that Steinbrenner year. And it's kind of innovative because now we see that a lot. Lauren does it a lot now where, you know what, Uh, Donald Trump, I need a guy to do that. I'm going to bring in Alec Baldwin. Uh, Biden, I'm bringing in Jim Carrey. We're going to see Maya Rudolph make. All the appearances, yeah. You know, Melissa McCarthy for Sean Spicer and different things. So now you see Lorne doing it a lot, but we got to give credit. The first to do it was Dick Ebersole in that season 10.
3: Yeah, and by the way, Lorne had his Steinbrenner year in season 11. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And he brought in like Anthony Michael Hall and Robert Downey Jr. And Randy Quay, Joan Cusack, and all those people. So he, he he thought that that's what he needed to do. Lorne, being he, thought that's what what needed to happen for season 11 definitely and i think you made a great point too about the aesthetic of season 10 when i was watching those shows growing up it didn't feel (laughs) like like snl maybe that was by design i mean even to the to the um opening montage where it was so creative was one of my one of the most creative opening montages in snl history where you had like the cast basically interacting with the city and I don't even know how to describe it like a diorama almost that the cast was living in and somebody was eating a hot dog and Julia Lewis dreyfus was like Marilyn Monroe getting shot up by the by the air and holding her dress yeah. down and all this stuff so I think even aesthetically that season 10 felt different but I don't think I mean looking back that's an enjoyable season to watch and sure. we can we can hand it to Dick Ebersol for making the the correct choices uh for that season 10 as as different as it is and and you know back then I was kind of like uh there's some funny
4: sketches, some funny short films, funny moments from that season. Billy Crystal a comedy legend, Martin Short, many people like honestly for just naturally funny, it's hard to top Marty Short. Like he can just deliver, I mean, hell, even for being a one-year guy, think at SNL 40 and just how brilliant when you know Maya and him are up there. And Maya has like she's doing Beyonce and the wind's blowing, and Martin Short's acting like the wind's gonna knock him over. Like Martin Short just can nail it every time. So I give it credit because they are some hilarious sketches and and it's a great season. Um, so I, as i gotten older, I've appreciated it more. But I I had to be honest, I wasn't a fan growing. I would kind of the reruns, I would skip over it. It took a while to like watch them and really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, I agree. I agree with that too. And Jim Belushi was surprisingly pretty decent. He was pretty yes. good on that on that season too. And I think he gets overshadowed by like Marty Short and Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest. But Jim Belushi, and whenever they gave Julia Lee Travis stuff to do, I think she was <laughs> she was pretty good too. Of course, it was like a a weird time in the show's history as far as. Equity and and all of that, but uh, I, I for the most part I did enjoy that season. And one funny story, one of, like maybe one of my favorite stories, actually happened that season. It was when Larry David yes quit in a fuss. So and we've a lot of us have heard the story. Larry David quit. He was angry that he wasn't getting sketches on he got completely fed up after one of his sketches was cut a few minutes before air. And so Larry David says that he walked up to Dick Ebersole and said, and this is where we're going to have to put the explicit label on this episode of the podcast, because Larry David told Dick Ebersole, this fucking show stinks. It's a piece of shit. I'm done. I quit. Fuck you. That's what he Mm -hmm. told. Yeah. (laughs) That's what he told Dick Ebersole. And I, I knew that story. Of course, Larry David, Made a Seinfeld episode based around that, but I guess it had escaped me that it was actually Dick Ebersaw mm-hmm. that, that Larry David told that to and not Lauren Michaels.
4: So most people don't realize, so they know, like you said, Thomas, that Larry David made that you know to a Seinfeld episode, and George, not as explicit they were on NBC, but says <laughs> that to his boss. So most people kind of know, yeah, George is Larry David, but people don't realize that the boss is Dick Ebersole. And Dick Ebersaw when Larry comes back on SNL, you know, Larry kind of walking home realizes, oh, my God, the decision I make and the money I'm going to be missing out, even though I'm miserable. So he's just like, I'll just come on back in and like act like everything's normal. That was to Dick Ebersaw, And Dick Ebersaw allowed that to go on. He, like we say, no ego, because he could have been get the hell out of
3: here. Right. But he let him come back. Yeah, he understood that that Larry was just mad, no hard feelings. Ebersol was just you know like whatever. So and and the other, like you said, that's a great Seinfeld moment and episode.
4: But from the Ebersol years, the Seinfeld connection, Larry David, five years later, creating a show with Jerry Seinfeld, they want a woman as part of the cast. He worked on in the Ebersol era with Julia Louis Dreyfus. So, even that connection to arguably the greatest sitcom ever is an Ebersaw
3: era SNL connection. Yeah, exactly. And we should point out, too, that one of the greatest things, maybe the greatest thing Dick Ebersole would say happened in his life occurred because of SNL. He met his wife, Susan St. James, the week that she hosted at the show in 1982. They hit it off. You know how the producer wines and dines every host, or they meet up with the host. They go to dinner. They do whatever. And... You know, dinner and a meeting with Susan St. James turned into dancing, I think, at a club, yeah. turned into hanging out, and all of a sudden they were a couple like the week that Susan St. James <laughs> was hosting SNL. Right. So Dick Ebersol met his wife to this day.
4: Yeah, they're still married. Yeah. It it's it's incredible he and that's timing. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's the thing. It's putting yourself out there. Ebersole took on the challenge of SNL, but it's timing. Who The writer's strike and then he put it in his book. Three crazy things. The strike, Eddie Murphy, you know, being there and he saw Eddie Murphy's talent. And then he had no idea Susan St. James, his future wife, would come and they I guess he swept her off her feet or vice versa or the same, whatever, but that he would meet his wife. That's that stuff. You, you, no one could predict that.
3: Yeah. And and that should be a story that every SNL fan knows that should go into SNL lore. Like Colin Jost met his wife on SNL. Dick Ebersole met his wife on SNL. So that, that mm-hmm. should be a story that every SNL fan, know, fan knows. So is there anything else that we may have missed about Dick Ebersall that you wanted to talk about? Or did you want to kind of move to your appeal to the SNL Hall of Fame voters?
4: No, I, I think, um, uh, yeah, I think I'm ready. I think it's just important to remember, oh, I'll say this. Mm-hmm. For the original, when he helped co-create it, obviously lauren and i don't take anything away from lauren was a big part of it for sure but even with the casting dick ever one of the guys to help convince lauren to bring on john belushi john belushi which i don't blame lauren lauren was nervous about bringing belushi on because belushi kind of had a a danger element to him and belushi was saying he hates television and you know didn't wasn't sure he wanted to join on and lauren was saying well forget it let's keep it moving But Dick Ebersaw was one of, like, the few people to sit down with Lauren and be like, we need this guy on the show. You got to bring him on the show. And even leading up to that first episode, right beforehand, NBC wanted everybody working on that show to have a signed contract. Minutes before 1130, Belushi still doesn't have a signed contract. And Ebersaw is back there with Belushi pleading with him to sign and Bernie Brostein, Lauren's, you know, the legendary Hollywood manager, Lauren's manager was back there. And Belushi said, well, I'll sign if he's my manager. And he got him. <laughs> Bernie said, okay, Belushi goes and signs it. And then Belushi walks out there and he is a part of that first cold sketch in SNL history. So it's those things that people don't realize, but all of this stuff makes a show go and ever even in those other ways, was helping to make some seminal moments in SNL history happen that people don't realize.
3: Yeah. And that speaks a lot to his instincts as well. That's a really great story. So we always wrap up our episodes with the appeal. So you're talking directly to SNL Hall of Fame voters right now. This is your last word on the subject. So sum up your case for putting Dick Ebersole in the SNL Hall of Fame.
4: To me, it's really easy. I want everyone, all the voters to hear this where would we we wouldn't have lauren michaels as the executive producer if it wasn't for dick Ebersaw? dick picked lauren to be the guy and i think we all can agree the most important person in snl history is lauren michaels that wasn't a foregone conclusion that took dick Ebersaw's foresight to be like this is the guy who can lead this charge he helped lauren to create that vision helped lauren to create you know to bring on the cast and all that stuff so that right there is huge then you look at it. We wouldn't be having an SNL Hall of Fame podcast if things were to go. You know, it'd be a show. Oh, yeah, remember that show for five years? It was a great sketch show. And that's Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that's nice. We wouldn't be having this awesome podcast and this great discussions and some of the most memorable pop culture moments over the last, you know, 48. We we're going on almost 50 years if it wasn't for after. That first year, doing that first year that Lauren is gone, season six, Dick Ebersaw and definitely Eddie Murphy, but Dick Ebersaw coming on board, agreeing to take over the reins when everyone was saying cancel the show, Saturday Night Dead, which we've all heard so many times now. He was a part of the first Saturday Night Dead and helping to stop that. He brings and he retools the show, brings in different writers, lets Eddie be the star, and that is the first time that, you know, SNL was saved. Now, SNL has been saved other times throughout, but they don't matter if you don't have that first, and Dick Ebersole was the executive producer who really saved SNL. So, I mean, just think about it. How can you not have a guy who picked Lorne Michaels, helped to create the show, and then save the show from just being that five-year TV show we talk about now? How can you not have him in the Hall of Fame? So, voters, please, Put Dick Ebersol in the SNL Hall of Fame.
1: An impassioned plea from Deremy Dove. Please, voters, elect Dick Ebersole into the SNL Hall of Fame. It's in your hands now. Will you choose to do that? We shall see. I have a sneaking suspicion he doesn't make it on a first ballot, but he ultimately lands in the SNL Hall of Fame where, dare me, notes he rightfully deserves to be having a hand in creating the show and having a hand in saving the show. I really like that summary, you know, Uh, this is the difference. This man is the difference between us talking about that great show from the seventies to this show that is got a legacy that's almost 50 years long. So there's that. Why don't we go to a great interview now with Rich Eisen and Dick Ebersall So you can hear a bit from the man in his own words. When did
0: Eddie Murphy cross your
1: screen? When did
0: you first meet him? When did that ever happen for you?
5: Well, after Lorne left the show, uh, they gave it to somebody else, and that person did not have much luck. But she did. She did hire Eddie. And when I got to Saturday Night Live, about two months after he was hired, it took me about four seconds to realize he was about the most talented young person in comedy I had ever met. On top of it, he really could conceptualize all kinds of things. And with two writers who let, later wrote most of his movies, Blaustein and Sheffield, uh, they began to write sketches uh, for me. And almost every one of them were every one of them were mem- memorable, including my favorite, which was the assassination of Buckwheat. <laughs> it was Eddie's idea. It, the, the character was the hottest thing in America at the time. <laughs> and he came in to pitch it to me. I said, you realize not only are you maybe committing a big mistake here, but you're making my life really difficult. He said, come on, Dick, this is really a good idea. So, excuse me. I said, yes. And the three of them, Blaustein, Sheffield, and Eddie, uh, sat down, wrote the assassination of Buckwheat. And about two hours later, they're back in my office. And they said, we got to do the follow-up. And I said, what's the follow-up? And they said, the assassination of John David Stutz. I said, who's John David Stutz? Well, he's the assassin. They, you know, <laughs> write down to three names, you know, and had, it couldn't be uh, right. a name, Jack Ruby or something like that, but it was uh, Stutz. <laughs> <laughs> we oh my there. God. Only, the only addition to that story is that about a day and a half before it was done, it had been rehearsed, the censors came to see me and said, you can't do that. Too many people will think that we're really having an assassination. I looked at him and I said, <laughs> Are you guys out of your mind? This is Eddie Murphy, the hottest comic in America, and we're staging his character, but we <laughs> get out of here. And, and they, they kind of realize their folly, and they, they stopped doing it.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Is it true, Dick, that the real Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, asked you to please have Eddie cease and desist of Mr. Robinson's neighborhood? Is that true?
5: Same, yeah, same year. I'm sitting at my desk. My assistant comes in and says, Fred Rogers is downstairs. I said, yeah, sure, sure, sure. sure. <laughs> anyway, I finally said, bring him up. So he came up and he sat with me and I think Bob Tischler, my co-producer at the time, and we uh, heard him out and he just said he thought it was a sacrilege and Mr. Rogers had this pure reputation and all that. And I said, Mr. Rogers, come on. This is a lovable comedy piece from somebody who loves you no matter how i tried i was getting nowhere so i said mr rogers come with me and i walked him down the hallway with me into the writer's offices and where eddie was oh gosh and i him there alone i figured particularly eddie would romance the hell out of him anyway uh, a little while later mr rogers stopped by my office to say goodbye and said he was sorry it hadn't worked out i quickly went back down the hall i said what the hell happened and he said, we tried everything, boss, but he just doesn't want it done. I said, well, we're doing it, but we just are not going to talk to Mr. Rogers anymore. And sure <laughs> enough, we entered the character that weekend. It was a sensation. And since it was such a wet kiss to Mr. Rogers, nobody in the media or anywhere else ever said a word about it. And I never heard from Fred again.
1: That's a great story. And, uh, I think it's really interesting to, again, hear from Ebersol, uh, sounding rather humble and, uh, engaging really, I don't know. I'm so confused as to where to put him, but we shall see because it's not my choice. It's your choice. So make sure you're registered to vote and you're ready to vote for season three. If you've already registered to vote, for season two or season one, you're locked in and you don't have to worry about it. So there's that. Big thanks this week to Jeremy Dove from the Bigger Than The Game podcast. And of course, my compatriots, Thomas Senna and Matthew Ardill. It ain't a show without you, fellas. So with that, that's what I've got for you this week. So if you would please do me a favor and on your way out, turn out the lights. Because the SNL Hall of Fame is now closed.
0: Thanks for listening to the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Make sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at SNLHOF. This is Doug Danant saying this is Doug Danant saying. See you next week
1: Durah
3: uh, Podcasts and such.